Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My next guest is an American hero, and she is someone to whom we should all be grateful for her service. And while she was serving her country, she was making extraordinary history. She is the first African-American woman to command a Navy ship. She's the first African-American woman to achieve two and three star rank. She's the first black woman to command an expeditionary strike force at sea, which she did when rescuing a United States cargo ship captain from Somali pirates. When she became vice chief of naval operations, she was the first woman to become a four-star admiral, and she was the highest ranking woman in United States naval history. She is the first female four-star to command operational forces when she assumed command of United States naval forces in Europe and Africa. After 36 years in the Navy, she retired. She now chairs a Department of Defense commission that's responsible for renaming bases and other DOD assets that were named for Confederate heroes. Please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Admiral Michelle Howard. Welcome to the podcast, Admiral Howard. Uh, it is a great pleasure and a huge honor to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Tanya, good to see you again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, wonderful to see you. Uh, you had a passion and a desire to serve in the military from a very young age. Where did that come from? Uh, why did you know you always wanted to do this? Well, one, my dad was a, a Air Force Master Sergeant, so I was an Air Force brat. But then when I was 12, I saw this uh, documentary and I actually think it was about the Air Force Academy. And I got <laughs> really excited, you know, the teamwork the uniforms, the leadership. And I was so excited. I didn't even notice. I saw this documentary when I was 12 and it was about, I think it was about the Air Force Academy. And I was enthralled with the, the teamwork, the marching, the leadership. And I was so excited. I didn't notice it was all guys. So I go to my <laughs> older brother, who's my best friend at the time. And he's like, uh, Hey, they're close to women. You can't go to a service Academy. And I, I thought he was messing with me. So I go to my mom and she's like, uh, he's telling you the truth. It's, it's, the, it's the law. And then I'm in shock because I'm like, I can keep up with my brothers on my bike. Why can't I do this? And then she said, hey, 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 you're, you're, you're only 12. You could change your mind. Uh, but if you don't, we'll sue the government. That was just amazing to me that you could sue the government. And she said, look, when you get old enough and you can apply, you, this is still what you want to do, and they reject you because you're a woman, we'll, we'll take it to the Supreme Court if we have to. But the lesson wasn't done there. Then she said, hey, look, if, if this is what you do and, and you have to take it to court and even the Supreme Court agrees with you that it's right and women should be allowed to go, at that point, you could be too old to go. It could take years. She goes, but other women will get to go. And she goes, and that's just as important. That is absolutely incredible. So your mother says to 12-year-old you, they don't let women in, but honey, we'll sue, we'll take it to the Supreme Court. And even if you're too old to get in, which by the way, I mean, you know how long it takes things to get up to the court and decide it. Uh, if you're too old, you're going to blaze a trail for somebody else. Uh, God bless your mother. Uh, you didn't have absolutely. to sue the Supreme Court. 
Uh, I mean, you didn't have to go to the Supreme Court, rather. I, not only uh, did you graduate from the Naval Academy, but you made all kinds of history. As I told my viewers and listeners at the outset, you were the first African-American woman to command a Navy battleship. You were the first African-American woman to achieve two and three-star rank uh, in the Navy. You were the first woman to become a four-star admiral when you became vice chief of Naval Operations, which made you the second highest ranking officer in the Navy and friends, by the way, the highest ranking woman in all of Naval history. You're the first female four star to command operational forces when you assumed command of United States Naval Forces Europe and Naval Forces Africa. So thankfully, you didn't have to bring a lawsuit to blaze a trail because you blazed that trail all on your own. Tell us how you think the Navy has changed for women uh, during the time of your career. So for all of us, this all goes, literally goes back to World War II. At the end of World War II, so women were brought into all the services as reservists. And then at the end of World War II, Congress holds a commission and says, you know, every time we have a war, we bring in women, they perform all these essential services, and then we let them go home. We need to have a cohort on active duty uh, so that the next time we have a war, it's easier to ramp up and bring the women in. And so they created, uh, I think it was the uh, Women's Armed Forces Integration Act. They said women can serve on active duty. So that came out in 1947, but they capped the percentage of women to 2% in any of the services. And they said women can't be an admiral or a general, period. So up until 1967, a woman who was an officer, the highest rank she could achieve was captain or colonel. And then the law, that part of the law was repealed. So by the time I'm 12 and seeing this video about the Air Force Academy, the Navy literally promotes their first admiral, Aileen Dirk, as head of the nurse corps. So it's, it sounds like ancient history, but it overlaps with my time frame. So now women can be admirals. And then with the advent of the all volunteer force, the services say, okay, women can serve more broadly. So the percentages of women start to, to grow. But even then, by the time I start Annapolis, women are about five or 6% of the Navy. They're not, they're not a significant uh, presence. And at the end of World War II, that's when Congress created the combat exclusion law. Women can serve in combatant ships or fly combatant aircraft. That was why I served in support ships. Uh, they had just opened up when I graduated from Annapolis. So I was pretty fortunate. I was in the small group of women who got to go straight to sea, but on ships that didn't deploy, they, did, they were maintainers of other ships or salvage ships or the training carrier. Then Desert Storm happens, and I was on an ammunition ship during that time frame. After Desert Storm, Congress has another commission. And the issue for them is, you know, the modern battlefield is a lot more fluid than we thought. And if you're flying a support helicopter, you can still be shot down just as much as if you're flying an attack helicopter. Same thing if you're flying a, a cargo a aircraft as compared to a fighter jet. Or in the case of women, you can hit a mine on an ammunition ship just the way you can hit one on a destroyer. So. 93, 94, they repealed that portion of the law that said women, can, women can't serve in combatant aircraft or ships. And I, gosh, I, I had just finished my, my fourth sea tour. So the change in the law is what allowed me to move in amphibious ships, get that 
experience set. And then that's what allowed me uh, to compete and uh, eventually take command of Rushmore. The distinction was really kind of a false one, as you point out, right? It said the exclusion of women from combat didn't mean that women weren't killed while combat was taking place. Uh, so it was really kind of a, it was such a false distinction. I named some of your firsts and some of the history you made, and it's worth pointing out, you're not that old. So this history is not that long ago. The history uh, is still being made right now. Uh, you were also uh, the first black woman to command an expeditionary strike group at sea. And you did that when you rescued, very famously, uh, Captain Phillips from the Maersk from Somali pirates. That, of course, became the Tom Hanks movie, Captain Phillips. Uh, Admiral Howard, most of us will never have the experience of uh, commanding warships. Most of us will never have the experience of serving our country in the capacity that you have. But I can also say that almost no one <laughs> is going to have the experience of rescuing a United States captain from pirates. So tell us what is going through your mind as you are leading the, this operation. Uh, let me give you some context. So. Late uh, 2008, the Somali government goes to the United Nations, and it's a transitional government. And they're like, they know the pirates are out there. They're uh, kidnapping commercial ships and holding people for ransom. Somali government doesn't have a military or a Coast Guard or, or a Navy. And they said, we, they proposed a resolution where all the navies of the world could come in and help detain suspected pirates, you know, go after them. And it's really more, it was more of a law enforcement mission. We were supposed to go out there, bust up, you know, pirates who are boarding a cruise ship or, and then, uh, you know, grab them and then hold them until a country was willing to take them to prosecute them. In international law, piracy is uh, uh, against the law. It's armed robbery at sea, on the, armed robbery on the high seas. So the Navy, U.S. Navy had stood up a task force early 2009 headed by uh, Admiral McKnight, and I went out uh, to relieve them. And so it had only been in existence a few weeks and they'd done a terrific job. We had lots of different coalition partners join us from Turkey, Germany, you know, and they're going in and out, sometimes South Korea. Japan would provide sometimes patrol flights to help us uh, get intelligence. And so I go out to the Gulf of Aden and grab Again, on board the big deck, and it's, I think it was like a Sunday when I relieved Captain McKnight, Captain McKnight, and took the mission. And then uh, Tuesday, Captain Phillips is kidnapped, and so you have all these assets. So your job is the first thing to really figure out what's going on. So we send a destroyer, Bainbridge, to go find out, and then to our surprise, he's not on a he's not on the Merce, Alabama anymore. He's on a life raft, and. That's the real big surprise. Uh, so I'm considered conventional forces. Talk about hostage rescue. That's done by special ops, hostage, particularly hostage rescue at sea. And all of the militaries around the world. In the 1970s, there was a cruise ship taken and uh, an American was killed. And so all the different militaries of the world developed processes to do hostage rescue at sea. But everybody assumed it'd be on a cruise ship. And so you get this covered life raft. And 
there's there's really no way to rappel down onto it, bring small boats. And so we're that's the big surprise mission-wise. But the next big thing is we got the specifications from MERS. This this life raft could hold 100 people, and it's got food and water for a month, and it's got fuel, and it's motoring its way to Somalia. And so we, as the conventional forces, have to somehow stop the life raft before it gets ashore in Somalia and, and allow time for the special forces to show up. And we only had hours, and, and we had to do it in a way that wasn't going to pressurize the pirates, because I was concerned they would, if, you know, if you go in with weapons, they're just going to kill Captain Phillips. And that that's not the answer. So we had to come up with an innovative way to stop the life raft, get it, somehow negotiate our way to take it under control. And, uh, and none of us are, of course, FBI agents. <laughs> none of us has done hostage. You know, it, life's a little bit more direct in the military. You're not normally negotiating with the enemy. <laughs> You're fighting the enemy. And, uh, and so we had to figure out how to stop the life raft in a non-kinetic way, get the pirates to talk to us, and create space and time to get the special forces out there. And I put together two planning teams, uh, made sure I had all different types of perspectives and people on them, and God bless them. They, they got together and said, hey, we, we understand your intent, and we think the best way to stop the life raft is with water. And uh, I was like, tell me more. And uh, they said, hey, we'll, we'll have the destroyer move out, come in, make a high-speed turn, and the wake will push against the life raft. And we flew it up the chain of command, and I think because no one else had any great innovative ideas, they said, do it. So that's what we did. At night, we had the brain bridge back up, make a high-speed turn. Luck's always a great team member. The pirates had left the uh, door open. Water goes in the life raft. They start yelling, what's going on? But they stop moving. And so we were at a standoff for several hours. They start up again. We use some fire hoses from another ship to push them back. And finally they said, okay, okay, we'll talk. And so that got us to talking with them. That allowed us to, we got their trust. We could send over a small boat and give them food and water, fresh water. And, and eventually they agreed to allow us to, to tell them. And, uh, just in it, and the guys with the red cape showed up after that. Wow. I, you know, you operate with a level of adrenaline that would frankly overwhelm uh, most of us, I think. What, as you are kind of putting together the strategy, uh, trying to, you know, get your team in a position to negotiate with these folks, because as you said, you know, your wheelhouse is you attack the enemy. You don't try to talk the enemy down from the ledge. How do you like stay calm? I mean, is it just so much a part of the military training that when you get to that point in a crisis, everything just gets very still and you do the job? I mean, what's happening in your mind as this is, as this is going on? So remember, this is my first crisis, right? I've already... <laughs> Like so, many folks at that point in my career where you've been in over a quarter of a century. I mean, my first war was Desert Storm. So let me tell you, low level stress is you're on an ammunition ship and they've identified there's mines in the water. <laughs> the good news is if you hit a mine on an ammunition ship, you there's no paperwork afterwards. You're done. <laughs> so 
there's missiles coming in. There's, you know, and that was my first war and I was in my late twenties. And as you stand watch, tactical watch, and you've got to stay focused. And if you're not calm, as you say, you know, you're, you're leading a watch team, your intensity and anxiety and everything else is going to infect the watch team. And you've got to stay focused on your mission, at which that point for us was not only moving ammunition to other ships, but the carriers, but to, you know, manage our self, our self-defense systems in case a missile or a fast patrol boat uh, came in. And so over the years, I mean, you just accumulate more and more missions. Now, I will say I had a good friend once say, you know, Howard, I don't know what it is with you, but you attract disasters. So, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, um, I was in the building on, on the, in the Pentagon on 9-11. What was that like? To me, that was the ultimate military, the sailor's frustrating day. You train your whole life to, you know, go to GQ, put a helmet on, put a flak jacket on, put on flash gloves. And here you are, you're in a more of an office environment. The building gets attacked. I was on the joint staff and we, when we saw the second plane on television hit the World Trade Center, we, we just assumed it was terrorist at that point. And we were actually starting to organize ourselves because we thought we were going to go into a crisis action team. Then we felt the shutter and the plane hit on the opposite side of the building where I worked. And uh, somebody said, that was in yellow gear. So, you know, in the basement of the Pentagon, you've got these big trucks running around that sometimes hit the walls and we're like, oh, great. So then we just started to organize ourselves, put away everything. And, and before we even could finish that, the evacuation sirens are going off. And everybody is, uh, we, we train for evacuations for fires and there's drills where you go out and muster in a certain spot. And so we just gathered up our stuff and went and went and uh, met where we're supposed to meet. And then, you know, you could see the smoke and the plumes and God bless them, the, you know, the Virginia first responders, FBI coming in, whole Pentagon becomes a crime scene. And eventually it's clear we're not going back in. So they said, and it's probably, we don't know if there's going to be more attacks. So we, we had moved down underneath the trees by the uh, Potomac River. And finally, they're like, it's just better if you go home. Well, my goodness, we were lucky. We had one colleague who had parked outside the Pentagon that day. So we all walked to his car. And then there was gridlock on the ballet because everybody was told to go home. All the federal agencies. And, and then, of course, there's no cross mills to America. There's no cell phones. So none of us could talk to our spouses or family members. And so we went to my house because I live closest. I was in a renting a house. And then uh, everybody sooner or later was able to get a hold of their spouses. And they all came to my house. My husband uh, was a hunting guide at the time. He's in Wyoming. So he has, he has no idea. And I just started cycling through the phone to contact my family members. And eventually the first person I got a hold of was my younger brother who starts crying. I am so sorry. I ripped apart your doll when you were 12. Oh, I go, don't have time for that. <laughs> Please contact mom, my sister. And uh, my mother actually got a hold of the outfitter who my husband worked for. They literally have to send a guy in on a horse into the thoroughfare in Wyoming to let my husband know and the clients know the Pentagon was attacked and your wife is okay. 
that's a, I mean, you know, I, I'm not making light, but that's a message that when you're off, like leading some people on a hunting trip in the woods, that is going to kind of throw you off. Uh, the Pentagon yeah. has been hit, but uh, at, at least your, your, your wife is alive. You know, we've talked about a couple of worldwide threats and threats to the United States, uh, Somali pirates, 9-11. What are the threats about which you're most concerned today? What worries you and keeps you up at night? Well, I'm retired, so a lot doesn't keep me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you are, as a civilian uh, of these United States. There's a whole new useful theme out there. Uh, you know, so the country, I think we have to really keep an eye on, it, it's North Korea. Uh, one, because the beloved leader is very earnest about, you know, getting to nuclear weapons and, and clearly has demonstrated long range rockets. And in my opinion, my personal opinion, he does not have a framework that's stable. He's just unpredictable. And I know sometimes people make that claim about President Putin, but I think when you look at what he says, when Putin makes statements and then white papers, he, he, he follows along with what he says he's going to do. With North Korea, that really is really sort of a wild card. And they are going after an ability to hurt America uh, still with intent. They've probably been the most heavily sanctioned country when you look at UN and other, you know, other than Iran. He's still trying to find a way to hurt the US if he can. So that's the wild card that I think we have to pay attention to. Our position with China, we're competitive with China, but I don't think there's any beliefs in any of our uh, leaders that whether it's the our U.S. leaders or the Chinese leaders that anybody wants to go wants to go down the path of where deteriorating we have deteriorating relationships and somehow something happens and that escalates to um, actual combat actual conflict between our countries. So I think North Korea is the big wild card, and then we'll see how how it works out with Iran uh, and uh, their pursuit of nuclear weapons over the next few years. Speaking of uh, conflicts, we have a lot of conflict right here domestically on our shores. Uh, some people say that this is the most divided we've ever been since the Civil War. I'm not quite sure, Admiral, if I agree with that. I feel like we've always been in various states of division. What's your response when you know, people describe this as one of the most contentious, divided, you know, Americans at odds with each other times in history. What do you think about that? Well, so I know you said I'm not that old, but I literally was a child of the 60s, right? So we're talking civil rights movement, busing, segregation. And we would, my dad, as I said, was an Air Force Master Sergeant. There are times we moved across country. We couldn't, we couldn't get a room in a hotel. There's times moving across country, we can't even get fed in a restaurant. <laughs> I just, I have a hard time putting, you know, today's, uh, and there were riots and protests and, oh yes, in a lot of places, the police were attacking the protesters, the famous 50s pictures of, you know, uh, black protesters. And, and uh, you think about some of the great leaders who've passed recently you know, uh, Cummings. And, and these are men who, who were, you know, when they were early political leaders and they're marching, they're, they're physically getting attacked by the police. 
And you're, you're, you know, I'm, I'm growing up in a time frame in Massachusetts where they're just starting to integrate the schools and I am getting beat, beaten up on the playground every day as a kid. (laughs) And so, yeah, the country's been this divided within my living history, the misbehavior of some police. We, we have video footage of that kind of misbehavior that went on in this country in the fifties and sixties. And as bad as that sounds, and you know, go back earlier than that, and you've got um, white supremacist and uh, and the overt lynching and destruction of African Americans in their neighborhoods. It's easy to say, "Oh my gosh, this is the worst we've been." I, I think it depends on what side of the color line you're on. Hmm. That kind of brings me back, though, to something I asked you early on which is your passion for service. So, I mean, let's just put these two ideas together. You're a young African-American girl. You're growing up, you're you're traveling with your family. There are hotels and restaurants where you all can't sleep and eat. Uh, You are seeing uh, instances and examples of institutional racism and that there are institutions (laughs) that where racism is not just tolerated, it's legal. It's the law of the land, it's accepted. Notwithstanding all of that, you have a passion to serve this country. You're somehow able to separate uh, that racial sickness from what you see as, and I'm, you know, these are my words, not yours, but I'll just describe it as, you know, the potential promise of America. You're able to separate those two things. What's your advice to young people today? who find it harder to separate those things, who are growing up with, uh, you know, they are seeing things on their phones, they're seeing things on the news. They are being told that, you know, folks don't want to hear about parts of their history. And I'm talking very specifically now about some of the attacks on uh, critical race theory, which by the way, isn't taught in elementary school and kindergarten. But um, what's your response to, what do you say to those young people? who are feeling alienated from America. This idea of we're isolated is a self-belief. And it's, it's your choice to say, I'm, I'm, I'm isolated and then become self-isolating, or it's your choice to go out into the world. There, there's challenges probably for every human being who exists. And I think some people just have a bigger burden than others. If you're a stay, stay-at-home mom, there's a critic for you too. <laughs> if you're working military women, there's a critic for you. <laughs> if you're, you're the first African-American to break the baseball barrier, Jackie Robinson, there's lots of critics for you. It's just kind of where this country is. There are things you can't control, but what you can control is what you want to do with your life. And you can go after that with passion. And and my advice would be pick a vocation that fuels your passion. And then you will never feel like you're going to work. And if you're not happy with the way America is, pick a vocation that allow you to influence the way America is. Go into law, go into government, go into the public service, go work at State Department, go work at the White House, go into politics. And that will fuel your passion. I feel alienated from society. Okay, you're going to have to figure out how to deal with your own feelings at some point. But And at some point, make a choice. 
in dealing with my feelings, are there things I can do to help make America the America I want it to be? Like you did. I mean, you grew up at a time when uh, things were much worse, frankly, than they are now. And you made a decision uh, that there were things that you were going to change. And so now young people, Admiral, have you uh, to, to whom they can look uh, as a leader who broke barriers and changed things. And, and I'm so happy that you said that because too many people now are growing up with the sense that a problem is just a problem and it's there and you can tweet about it and Facebook about it and write about it, but you can't really change it. Uh, actually, you you can change it. But um, So the, the great Maya Angelou, my favorite quote from her is, if you don't like something, change it. And if you can't change it, change your attitude. Here, here. We are in the middle of a, a, a contentious, disturbing time, frankly. Um, like most Americans, I'm sure that uh, you were horrified by what took place last year on January 6th, the attack on the Capitol. But I, I, I'm interested specifically in your views as a veteran, as a commander of American forces, as someone who you know put on a uniform and led men and women in uniform to fight the enemy out there. What was it like seeing for you, seeing your capital, you know, the capital that you and the Constitution that you swore to defend and uphold and were ready to put your life on the line for and the lives of the men and women who served under you? You know, they're putting their lives on the line to defend against foreign enemies. And then you see Americans treating your capital and desecrating your capital in the way that they did. What, what was that like for you in particular? Well, so, uh, yeah, I, we, my husband and I were both home and we were, and we live in Colorado and we were watching it unfold on television. And, and, you know, first of all, thank goodness for freedom of the press and those journalists out there and the bravery of those journalists to report to us events as they unfolded. Thank goodness for that right. So we could all see for ourselves what was happening. And then, you know, for me, Emotionally, I mean, you know, I was uh, uh, anger and then dismay and, and in some ways, pure sorrow, pure sorrow over what was happening. Uh, and then in, you know, strict military terms, constitutional terms, it, Article 3 is pretty interesting of the Constitution. Our founding fathers decided to create a clause and kind of define who's a traitor. And it's anybody who wages war against the United States or someone who abets or supports those waging war. And there's got to be at least two witnesses. I think for many of those folks, we kind of met that condition in the Constitution. And thank goodness, uh, you know, our uh, federal uh, agencies are investigating. They're finding out who these people are and they're going to be held accountable for what they did. And so the question will be, you know, so we've got folks who are going to be charged with everything from assault to murder to, and it'll, it'll be interesting if anybody decides, well, should they be considered traitors? And uh, those are those are legal questions that our government has got to answer at some point. 
Are you comfortable with the way the investigation is taking place? Um, it's a little bit of a loaded question. I, I, I'll say to you as, you know, a lawyer, uh, as somebody who, yeah, I really have to put some respect in the process, regardless of whether or not, um, you know, any particular outcome is suitable to me. But I, I, I'm concerned now because it seems that there are so many folks, leaders, political leaders, who are openly disrespectful and, and cavalier toward this process. Do you have any thoughts or views on that? We're a democratic uh, society that was founded that, hey, there's going to be political parties. And um, so in anything that our elected representatives do, the politics have to play out as well as the truth seeking. And that's part of part and parcel of, you know, the messiness of, uh, of democracies. You are chair of the naming commission that is in charge of renaming Department of Defense assets that commemorate uh, the Confederacy or people who fought for the Confederacy. Uh, Admiral, tell us a little about where that work stands right now. So it's a uh, congressional uh, charter um, commission. So there's four of us appointed by the Secretary of Defense and four appointed by the principals from the House Armed Services Committee, Senate Armed Services Committee. So we started meeting last March and um, we get to set our own framework. Uh, Secretary of Defense has the Army given us direct support. We have to create this inventory of everything uh, in defense that's named. So it's not just base names, streets, buildings, ships, and a catch-all phrase, paraphernalia. Um, and so uh, defense is making that list and we're getting ready to confirm that. We have to come up with cost estimates of what it would take to remove a, you know, a monument or modify <clears throat> um, a, you know, the name on a building. So we're working with defense on that. The law tasked us to account for local sensibilities. So we went to each of the bases that will be renamed and met with the community leaders, uh, mayors, chambers of commerce, presidents of NAACP, presidents of LULAC, self-identified active, whoever said, you know, pastors, yes, I'm interested. We, we brought them in to the basis and commission members met with them and had conversations about potential new names and, and about the process. So we're at the point where we're going into deliberations. We have to create a plan. That plan goes to the HASC and SASC, and then it gets forwarded to the Secretary of Defense. And it's it's the identification of what gets gets to be renamed and then the processes for renaming and then the commission's suggestions and recommendation. Ask and Sask have it for 90 days and then they send it on to the Secretary of Defense and he has 2023 uh, to implement the plan. Do you have any thoughts about, uh, you know, statues, schools, street names, and civilian uh, contexts where people are really grappling with, who do we honor? You know, I mean, some folks are like, if you had slaves, you don't get a statute. If you, you know, supported, uh, if you took, if you embraced positions now that we find abhorrent, uh, we want to take your name down. Um, do you have any general guidance or thoughts about how to draw those lines in other contexts? Well, so for, I want to be clear, the commission is only because it's federal. It's only for the Department of Defense. So outside 
the fence line. Those st the states have rights. Those communities, those states, those individual businesses, the, that's their choice. And, and they're going to have to, and I think it's, these are going to be hard. So if there's a base, you know, like Fort Hood, there's probably, there's a Fort Hood bank or a Fort, Fort Hood dry cleaners. And these are individuals who their company name is identified with the base name. And so they're going to have to make decisions as citizens and it's going to cost them money. It's not free to change your name and all the paperwork. And then for the rest of it, every state has their own culture. And I think within communities, people can get together and say, look, here's, here's the values in our community. Here's who we want to honor. And here's who we want to uh, put in historical context. Admiral Howard, you have done so uh, many important, incredible things for all of us, for your country, for history, but I cannot let you go. Uh, without finding out, what do you do for fun? How do you relax? How do you play? Oh, so my husband and I, we retired to a small town in Colorado. I, my dad was there for so I grew up uh, in Colorado. We have 70 acres, two mules and a horse. So we go horseback riding and uh, we have two dogs. We spend our time outdoors, hiking, riding. And in summertime, seven miles from the Arkansas River, fishing. A true outdoors woman. Are you reading anything good right now? I just finished a good friend, a historian, sent me the book Begin Again by um, Gald. I think G-A-G-L-A-U-D, Professor Eddie Gald. Gald. He takes, the professor takes James Baldwin's essays from the civil rights movement era uh, when he was writing for magazines, 50s, 60s, early 70s, and shows how they're applicable to what's going on in America today. And uh, so he's, he's saying we can learn still from James Baldwin. We can also learn from you. I have, and uh, I, I think all of us have uh, during this time. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Admiral. I'm sorry for the challenging connection. But listen, if you want to do this live on your ranch on horseback, uh, I, I will accept the invitation that you care to make. Thank you so much for being here <laughs> <Okay>. today. <laughs> No, thank you, Admiral, thank you for the conversation. And Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year, Admiral. Thank you.